Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. I can tell when y'all are ready. All of a sudden, did you hear that quiet? Was it, did you see the clock? It's 10.01. Anybody running late like me? This morning, oh, y'all are all on time, people. No, I'm normally on time. I'm a little bit early, not as early as my mother, but pretty early. My mom will get there 20 minutes before the thing. I'm more like five minutes, you know, so I can get in. But she sent me a song this morning that any of y'all listen to the Gaithers? Okay, see, I grew up with that. If you're younger, you probably don't know who the Gaithers are. But I grew up with that gospel music, and I'm telling you, there is a song she sent me this morning. I can't get it. I was singing it coming in, and I'm going to be singing it coming out. It's uh, by David Phelps, who I think has the best tenor voice I've ever heard in my life. Um, And it's called End of the Beginning. End of the Beginning. And it is so cool. So... It's funny to me like how I'll be studying something and then I'll start worshiping through a song and I'll see something different. And the premise of the song is that he's on an airplane with a man who says, hey, what are you reading? And he said, oh, it's, it's a bestseller and it's uh, history and mystery in one, he says. And then he starts to tell it and he says, um, oh my gosh. Now, I can't remember, y'all. I sang it to you this morning. One holy night. Oh, he, he was born of a virgin one holy night in a little town of Bethlehem. The angels gathered round underneath the stars singing praises to the great I am. He walked on the water, healed the lame, made the blind to see again. And for the first time in a the world or some, we knew that God could be a friend. And although he never ever did a single thing wrong, the angry crowd chose him. And then he, something about he died. And that was the end of the beginning. Thank you. And the best part of this that I kept listening to, because at the end, Oh, you're going to be levitated out of your car when you're listening to it. Because when he talks about him rising, I literally was driving my truck with my knee and I was like, "Woo!" like that. This is so good. So, but the cool part is, is the guy is struggling with religion. And what is he? He just keeps going back. He doesn't argue with them about religion. He goes back and he says, no, you didn't hear me. He was born of a virgin one holy night. In a, I mean, and he goes back and he's like, no, let go of that. I want to introduce you to Jesus. I want to tell you what he did. No, you're missing it. Let's go back. And then he, and I love that because isn't that what John is doing? He's always going back. He's showing us that Jesus always went back. He didn't engage in these frivolous arguments about religion. He goes back to teaching the themes he came to teach over and over and over. And isn't that the deal? Here's the problem, I think, a lot of times with church and religion. We say one thing where, when they're on this side of the cross, whosoever will may come, Come on, we want you just as you are. Everybody is welcome. And then they come, and when they do, all of a sudden we take the burden of what it, we believe it looks like to be a Christian and all the rules, and we burden them down again. And here's the thing. That's not how it works. How it works is when you meet Jesus, Scripture says that he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And he writes his commandments on our heart, meaning it's going to be a transformation from the inside out. It is a relationship, and that happens over time in a relationship with a person, not in a burden with rules. Does that make sense? And so the guy in the song, you're like, why is she teaching us this song? The guy in the song says, no, I've done religion, and it didn't work for me. And he's like, you're missing it. He was born of a virgin. One hope, meet him. Meet him. And sometimes I think we even do that when we study God's word. We get very much into the written word, the right or wrong or the 
we read today the jot and tittle of the word, and we forget that really the most important thing is that they meet the logos. They meet the living word of God, and he, he still speaks. So anyway, there is your intro. You need to, some of you are like, who's the Gaithers? Well, I'm going to tell you. Meet him today. And actually, David Phelps, I don't even know if he's with the Gaithers anymore. But listen to the song, End of the Beginning. It is a really, really cool song. So well, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to dive in. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for worship. I thank you, Lord, that as we study, we're digging and digging and digging. And, and often, Lord, I'm wrestling I'm wrestling for understanding. I'm wrestling for application. I'm wrestling over things that seem incongruent. I'm wrestling over all kinds of stuff. But Lord, thank you that today during worship, all those things seem to get in line or maybe even fade away when I realize there's such a thing as mystery. There will be some things I never quite understand. Your ways are higher than mine but I can get back to the main thing, and that is you were born of a virgin. One holy night in a little town of Bethlehem. You were the God-man. You were fully flesh, but fully divine. And you came, and it was evident that the light had come into the world because the things you did, only the great I am could accomplish. And so, God, I am so thankful that you did those works to prove who you are and then bring us a new message that a new kingdom is coming, a new relationship is coming, a new covenant. And that covenant is in my blood. And if you believe in me, then you will become my children, my seed in the tale of two seeds. And that seed will never see death. We will be raised to life. Um, and Lord, not just spiritually, but one day the spirit will connect with the glorified physical body and all will be restored. And so thank you, Lord, for study. Thank you for application and thank you for worship when our hearts can rejoice in what we've learned. Uh, be with us today and God teach, oh, teach and be the counselor because there are things even I, um, I'm still struggling with this very moment, trying to understand, trying to put into my own life. And so God, teach us all today in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John, these things I have written. I could have written a lot of stuff, uh, but I chose to put these things together so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, not only just in title, but that I, he has fulfilled all that means throughout the Old Testament and the prophets and what will to come, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is divine, that he is a part of this triune relationship that we've been talking about, that he is the son of God. And by believing in him, you will have life. And he's constantly telling us what kind of life that is. And so he starts, if you remember, with the themes in chapter one. Did you do your theme card? Look, and you're like, no. It's like going to counseling and he gives you homework and you come back next week. You didn't do any of that darn homework. But here's the thing. What will your, what will your therapist or your counselor say? Some of you are like, I don't know, I've never been. Well, let me tell you. He will say that if you don't do the work, what's he gonna do for you? right? I'm constantly telling you, I study and study and chew and chew, and I'm digesting, to be quite honest, for me, and I regurgitate it up for you. You want to eat on regurgitated food? I don't think that's enough. I like to chew my own food. Thank you very much, right? And so you need to get your face in the book. I'm giving you all kinds of things for you to think about and highlight, but you got to spend some time there. And if you're not, you're just, you're missing out. And don't do it like it's some kind of a check mark. Do it because what is magical about it is when you're in the word and you're spending time with the living word, what happens in you? That's the magic of it, okay? And so the themes, word equals God. He was God and he was with God and all things were created through him, this triune relationship. 
that, he, that in him is life. How? He is the light that came onto the scene. He is the light of man. He came onto a scene that would be a scene of conflict because the darkness wouldn't be able to overcome him. And so he will light up everyone, right? And the darkness won't be able to overcome it. Um, some will go back towards the dark, but there will be some that will walk into the light. His own would reject him, but many who would receive him would be called what? Children of God. There is a new family coming on the horizon. He's here, a new seed that is happening. And they will be called sons of God, and they are born from God, from above. Not the will of man, not the seed of man, but from above. And then he goes on to say that this word put on flesh and tabernacled among us, that you're about to meet this living temple. And in this living temple, he is here to show us the glory of God as only the sun could. And so John is saying, we saw that glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on. And he says that he is the Lamb of God, he is the Son of God, and he is the Son of Man, which is the great judge, the one who has all dominion mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Those are the themes. And we've seen him present this uh, masterpiece, and he did it by breaking it up into portraits, correct? I'm going to say this enough to you that you're just going to remember it like no else, Okay. Uh, what is the first portrait? He's going to deal with Jewish institutions. The first one was the wedding, and the second one was the temple, and the third one, the rabbi, and the fourth, the well, okay? And basically, he is showing things uh, that have been broken and that he is truly the fulfillment of, okay? Does that make sense? And then he goes in, what are the next four? Like feasts, right? So Sabbath, Passover, we're in Feast of Tabernacles, and then we're going to go into Hanukkah. And so that's kind of how it's broken up. That's how it's organized. So uh, last time we talked about Passover, and um, basically the gist of it you can find in chapter 6 in... Okay, how about, you can sum it up in verse 47 and 48. John 6, 47 and 48. Truly, truly, or listen up, this is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. This is important. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So what is it to believe? Well, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me has life. So believing equates with eating the bread. And so the whole thing proceeds from there, right? Eating the bread. They're at Passover. They are remembering the time in the wilderness, the time they exited out of Egypt, and God led them into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And Moses provided manna in the wilderness, the supernatural food that came and sustained them. And he, and so when they see this uh, feeding of the 5,000, they're like, ah, this is the prophet that Moses told us about in Deuteronomy that is going to come and be like me and we're to do everything he says. And so this is he. They went to make him king and he's like, you're missing the point. Something new is happening. That was the birth of a nation. You pass through the waters, you entered a covenant and here you are in the wilderness. But what I intended for you to do and that is to bring the kingdom of God to the earth, you failed in doing so. This is something new. I have now come to vindicate my own name to start something new. I am not here to bring you bread from heaven in this earthly kingdom to sustain you. I am the bread from heaven. This is a spiritual kingdom that we are going to. It is not being born of the will of man or of seed or physical life. It is being born from above, being born in the spirit. And my kingdom is spirit. 
I am here to start a new family to take you to a new land. You will pass through the waters. You will enter into a covenant with me and we will have the hope of glory. But I am the bread of life. So what is believing? Eating and drinking my blood, meaning taking me in. He, it's, it's symbolic. Are you seeing this? He is going with this analogy of taking me in, eating me, allowing me to be the thing that sustains you for life. And he refers to it as abiding, abiding in, holding on. The word also means remaining in. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides or remains in me, he will bear much fruit. But without me, he can do nothing right? And so you have this whole idea. So that's what he's telling them with Passover is he's like, I am the bread from heaven. You know what a stir that caused, right? Many rejected him and left. This is such a hard saying, but the 12, what did Peter represent? He says, where would we go? You have the words of life. In you is life. Why? Because we are fully convinced that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We continued. So we talked all about that last week. Um, and so now we're at, we're at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay. Now, little review. We talked about this last year. This is chapter seven. Okay. Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember what that's all about? They're still, they're celebrating uh, the wilderness wanderings, right? Do you remember some of the things they did? Basically, God told them, listen, once you get into the land, I want you to live for seven days once a year as if you're not. I want you to remember. I want you to remember the wilderness wanderings and what that was like. And what are the, some of the things they would remember? They would remember all the provision of God. They would remember uh, the glory of the Lord above the tabernacle. They would remember the pillar of fire uh, at night and the cloud by day. They would remember when they struck the rock, what happened? Water would pour forth from the rock. And so all of those things we're going to see in just a minute are a part of the traditions of their celebration, remembering those things. And so they would come from all over and they would build little booths. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. And they would build little booths and they would basically camp outside for seven days with their family, telling the stories, remembering the stories, looking up at the same stars, telling the stories about their forefathers and what happened in the wilderness. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that this is the greatest, most joyful of all the holidays. In other words, this is a party. This is the party that is filled with joy and singing and dancing. This is when young people saw staunch leaders and uh, scribes and Pharisees actually experiencing joy and singing and dancing and singing the Psalms. And there were lots going on. We're going to talk about the water libation and the lighting of the great candelabras on the Temple Mount. And so it was quite the week. This is the setting for the stories and the conversations we're about to have. And it is from about 7b, I'll say, the second half of chapter 7 all the way to chapter 10. Okay, that's kind of the section of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So let's break it down um, a little bit. Let's look at chapter 7. And you're going to see that now I'm going to start to slow down a little bit. This is still review, but by next week, we're slowing down from the overview as much because we're kind of in the area where we left off um, last year, okay? So chapter seven says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, so basically the brothers are like, hey, 
I don't know what you're doing. If, if you think you're the Messiah and that you're going to be this famous king or leader, I can't imagine the way to do that is to hide out in the Galilee. You got to get to the big stage, my brother. All right. Now they aren't believing in him, but they're like, if you've got a shot, everybody knows that if you're going to be the end or you're going to be a part of the leadership, you got to get to where the leadership is. And what better time than the Feast of Booths? Okay, when they are remembering the wilderness wanderings, they're remembering Moses, and they're still watching for that leader that is to come. So now's the time. And basically, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Well, of course, that makes sense to you. You have an earthly timeline. When there's an opportunity, you take it. That's it. But the fact is, I'm not on an earthly timeline. I'm on a what? A divine timeline, and we've seen that from the beginning because he always refers to my hour has not yet come. What's the hour we're talking about? His crucifixion, all right? And he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. He's like, you can pretty much go wherever you want. But the fact is when the light shows up, stuff happens. Why? Because the darkness cannot overcome it. When it shows up, there will be conflict. When he lights up these new truths, there is going to be conflict. And he's like, no, I'm not rushing this. I'm on a divine timeline. I still have things to accomplish for the Father and things that need to be said. And so, no, I'm not pushing the envelope. Do you understand what they're asking him is exactly the same thing that the enemy was saying to him when he says, hey, I'm going to take you up like in your mind to the top of the temple, throw yourself down because what will happen? The angels will catch you. They won't even let. So make yourself known. Do something miraculous to step into your kingdom. Rush this. Do this without the hour. Okay? Push the envelope. Have your own timeline. Do it for your own glory. Step outside of that relationship with the Father. It's the same temptation. He says, no. I do exactly what my Father tells me when my Father tells me to do it. I am on a divine timeline that was set before the beginning of the beginning, and I am staying on it for that hour. You don't understand what you're saying. I am not going to speed up the process. That was kind of rude because I've never said that before, and that struck me. Does anybody strike anybody? <laughs> don't you hate it when you teach and then you learn from your own stupid mouth? Well, maybe I want to rush the process. Don't you ever want to rush the process? Seriously. I talked to some athletes yesterday over at Liberty High School, and we were talking about the process, about rushing the process. Listen, growth is in the process. How often do we say, God, could you please get me out of this? And saying, God, what can I get out of this? I've got to stay in the process. I think uh, the other night I, was, I went to a small group in my neighborhood, and if you watch any of the small group neighborhood videos from CCV last week, he talks about not rushing the desert. And I was sitting there, I was like, oh, I don't like, do y'all like the desert? I don't like it. But if we rush it and we don't learn all that God has for us to learn, we tend to what? cycle back. And I'm like, no, I need to learn all that I need to learn so that I make decisions out of wisdom and not need. Does that make sense? And so I just think that was rude that I just said that. But he's like, no, I am trusting the divine schedule. I am trusting the process. In other words, I'm trusting my father. And here's the question, do we really trust the father? That's a hard question, and a lot of you are probably thinking, oh yeah, I fully trust the Father. Well, I'm gonna tell you, sometimes that's hard to do. And uh, I, I was talking to my counselor the other day, and he said, you wanna know one of the worship songs that I don't like? And I said, lay it on me, because there's some I don't like. He said, a good, good father. And at first I thought, he's a good, good father. 
But think of all the pain my counselor has heard of things happening to individuals, and you're thinking to yourself, how can you truly be a good, good father and, and allow all these things to happen to your children? That is a valid thought, and that is for him to wrestle with. But I like that he's being truthful in that, and I am too. Sometimes it is hard when you think, okay, I trust you, I trust you, but I don't know if I trust you because I thought I trusted you before and some things happened and then the next thing happened and then the next thing happened. I'm a little weary of trusting you and that's stuff you work through with this. But with Jesus, he fully trusts the Father. And so how many times do you have to sit in that desert not knowing how or why or when or whatever it is, but you're sitting in there going, but what I do know is I can fully trust you. I can trust you. And you constantly tell yourself that. I can trust you. I can trust your timeline. And you are a good father, even though sometimes it does not make sense to me. And I don't want to rush it this time. I want to trust you. I see other times I stepped outside too quickly. And so please, Lord, let me grow. Let me mature. Jesus is telling them, I don't work that. I fully trust the Father. And I... I will go at another time. There's a theme here, right? One of the themes, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Do you see that? So you see that conflict theme about, he says the world hates me because I come in and light everyone up and they have to make a decision. So there's that theme right there in the story. Um, and then it goes on. I love the fact that it says, um, well, in my notes, he didn't let opinion or circumstances pull him off course. I love that. Because the fact is, he was gonna go into conflict. So he didn't allow the opinion of his brothers to influence him. Isn't that hard sometimes? Everybody got an opinion. It's hard not to let those opinions come in and be the noise when you're really trying to listen to one opinion. And it is very hard to understand that if you've listened to him, why you keep stepping into conflict. It reminds me of, do you remember after the feeding of the 5,000? I, I didn't teach that this year, but if you go back and look at uh, the videos from last year, I touch on this. When they go to make him king and he pulls back, do you remember that he sends his disciples out in the boat? Do you remember that story? And you have this whole thing of Jesus walking on the water. But the point was, he sends the disciples out. They are fully in his will. They are totally obedient to him. And yet when they go out, the wind is at their face, not at their back. It's against them. And they end up in a storm and they fight that storm stinking all night long. So how is it that you can fully be in a storm and still really be in the center of what God's will is for you? Uh, we see that again um, when, when we look at the temptation in Matthew 4. Here's another example of it. If you are the son of God, turn the stones into bread. Do you understand what he's saying? You're telling me you're the son of God and you're starving? You're hungry? How good of a father is he if he's got you out here for 40 days and you're starving to death? Really? If you are the son of God, get out of it. How in the world can you be in this situation and God be with you? Uh, we've done a series at CCV uh, this time about Joseph. And I, I believe it, it might have been Ashley that pulled it out that said, look, do you notice it says, I think I wrote it now. It says, God was with Joseph while he was in prison. Do you understand how kind of crazy that is? If God was with him, why is he in prison? So it just goes to show you that we can't allow the circumstances of our life to impact how we see God. We have to look at the circumstances of our life through God. Because if not, you'll be like, you're not good. You hate me. What have I done? What do I need to do to get out of it? All through the Old Testament, you see people giving God 
motives. Rachel finally has a baby and says, oh, yay, now God's on my side. He's completely vindicated me. Yay us. Go team. No, but what we do is we try to interpret the character of God through the circumstances instead of knowing the character of God and trusting them in any circumstance. And that, that's the difference. And so right here, he is showing them, no, I fully trust my father. I do not uh, operate on the opinion of men. I do it based on my father's will. I do what he says. I say what he says. It is his timeline. And I don't judge the circumstance. I know my father. I am confident in our relationship. So it goes on. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Of course they are, because they still have something in their craw about the last time they saw him, and they, they're looking for him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. I love that. While some said he is a good man, others says, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Don't you love that they're sitting here celebrating the Feast of Booths, the Tabernacles? And what are they doing? Do you know what muttering means? Grumbling. <laughs> well, nothing's changed. They're out there living in these dang booths, uh, remembering the wilderness. And what are they doing? Just griping up a storm. They're just uh, grumbling. And this is the attitude of the people when, to be quite honest, the great I am walks in. It says, and in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? <laughs> okay, so first off, what do they actually mean by that? Okay, every Jewish boy studied, all right? Uh, not every Jewish boy became a rabbi. Uh, you would be the exceptional ones, the highly astute ones would be asked to follow a rabbi. The rest of them would follow what their fathers did. I was telling the athlete yesterday, I said, you know, we've kind of ruined y'all's generation to be quite honest. And they looked at me. I said, we've told you that you're all special. You're all special. And that you have a unique calling on your life because you're so special. I said, but if all of you are special, then the word doesn't mean anything, right? Unique, special. I said, you're special to us or you're special to your mother or to your father, right? I said, but back in this day, nobody thought, oh, what is my great calling in life? I've got the world at the tail. No, you were either astute and you were asked to follow a rabbi or guess what? If your dad was a fisherman, you became a fisherman. If your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. And I said, they knew uh, that it was valuable to have a J-O-B, job. And I said, and so in this generation, listen, it's not about this magical outcome. It is the process. Get a J-O-B and grow in that J-O-B. And guess what? Maybe another one will open up and you can walk into that one, right? But we have this idea that we just shoot for the stars. Here, they're saying, Jesus, how, how does he teach like this when we haven't taught him? So the way it was with a rabbi is you would follow your teacher and he would teach you his interpretation of the scripture. And then when you taught or you had disciples, you continued that interpretation of the scripture. And when you taught, you gave credit to your rabbi. So according to da 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 and they're saying, wait a minute, where is he getting all this information? And how is he teaching with such authority and understanding when he has not come through our system and he is not giving any of us credit for that? I want to show you something in Matthew chapter 5, 17. This comes up. It's this attitude of how in the world is he teaching what he's teaching? Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says this, do you think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Let me ask you something. Why does he start with, do you think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? Why does he say that? Because they are thinking that he is abolishing the law and the prophets. Do you understand? His teaching is so different and so radical that they've never heard anything like it, that they are so tense and so protective of the law, they don't even know what to think because it seems like by his teaching that he's doing what? That he's trying to abolish the law and the prophets, but he he corrects them. He says, no, I haven't come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here's the thing. He's saying, I have come to fulfill it. He's saying the law and the prophets are good. Okay, this is the best way I know how to explain this. The law and the prophets are good. They're the basics. And we're talking about, okay, the basics of the Ten Commandments and about the 600 other laws that were added uh, in, in the books of Moses, okay? And he's saying they're good. They're basic. But it's like this. I think I heard Tim Mackey use this example one time, and I was like, that's brilliant. He said, if you're ever trying to learn music, what's the first thing you learn? Scales. So I stopped right there, right? Scales, you practice the scales, you practice the scales because in some sense, that is the basics, that is the law of music. The scales are good. You can't play music without the scales really. And so he's saying that's all good, but what I've come to do is I've come to show you that I can turn scales into music. I want you to see that. He's saying, I'm here to turn the scales into music. What does that look like? Well, you have been taught from the law, thou shalt not murder. That's basic. That's the action, all right? For most people, some people, maybe that's hard not to do. Every now and then it's hard not to do. Can I just tell you? Okay, but for most of us, right, we kind of have that, but he's like, but really it's even deeper than that. That's the scale. It actually comes down to the heart if you hate your brother. See, this is the scale. This is the true music of what the heart of God is. You have been taught that do not commit adultery. Like, don't sleep with another woman that's not your wife. Like, don't act that out. For some people, that's hard. For most, okay, but he said it's, that's basic. What I'm truly after is beautiful music of the heart, and I'm going to back it up for you a little bit. I'm saying to you, it even starts with lust. He's saying, this is, this is what I'm trying to tell you, that you have learned the basics. But what I want you to understand, it's deeper than the scales. It is a new music that happens within the heart. So Jeremiah 31, I think, helps us understand that. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant that's coming. A new covenant, people. It says this, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. It is the idea of this new covenant that is coming. I taught you the scales. I led you out of Egypt like children by the hand. I gave you the basics of what not to do and what to do. I had a relationship with you like a husband, but guess what? You broke it. 
And don't we know that today? Can you possibly legislate morality? No. How many will it take? Have you ever worked at a Christian school? You try to legislate morality? It's very hard to do that because everybody comes up with some exception. Well, how do you hold true to that rule? Or how do you do this? And it is the messiest bunch of junk you've ever seen in your life. Everybody walks away mad and hurt. Uh, Christianity gets all messed up. Grace gets trampled on. Justice, who's that? And you just have this whole thing. He said, I, we tried this. I gave you the basics and I led you by hand out. And what? You broke it. Didn't work. It leads to death. You're a slave to the scale. But instead, what is coming, there will be a new covenant. And when that happens, we're going to make some music because I am going to come in and give you a new heart. I'm not going to legislate morality. I'm going to give you a new heart, and it's going to be within. And we no longer have to go teaching rules to our neighbors because what? Uh, everybody will have, they're talking about followers, will have a heart that, guess what? The spirit can talk to, and not to mention we're leading by example. We're showing them. And this is the idea of the new covenant people in Jeremiah 31. So Jesus answered them in verse 16. We're back in chapter seven. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The bottom line, he is saying, listen, if you want to see the light has come. I have made it so evident. If you want to see, you will see. The reason they're not seeing is because they are refusing to see. I don't know if you've ever had anybody that was like that, a discussion. And it did not matter what you showed them or what you said or how you proved it. They just weren't going to see it. It was like this blindness, this obstinance. Um, Psalms 25.9 talks about that it, God teaches the humble of heart, the teachable, right? How about Romans 1.18? I love this verse. It says that God has made himself plain. Matter of fact, let's, let's read it. It says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has made himself plain, to be honest. He's made himself plain even in what he has created. But he truly made himself plain when the Son of God put on flesh and tabernacled among us and showed us the attributes of God. He made himself plain, and the fact is they refused to see. And he is telling them that I, basically it's the theme, John 1:14. He tabernacled, he tabernacled among us. He put on flesh, tabernacled among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory of the only son. It's plain. He said, so if you want to see, you will. And that's why he said, that is why I've told you that anyone who comes to me has come because the father has drawn him. <clears throat> you believe Moses who gave you the law, yet... How are you really changed by it? <laughs> you are trying to kill me. Like they're not even see the logic. You're trying to kill me. I'm innocent. Tell me one thing I've done. But yet in your heart, <clears throat> you have murder in your heart. So you won't receive me when I've done nothing. But you say you receive Moses, but yet you don't obey what Moses said. Logic. 
Sometimes today, I just see illogical things, do you? It makes me a nut. I don't want to be a sheep that always just goes by what I'm told. We have eyeballs. We see things. I'm not gonna get wild about it, but are you kidding me? COVID is not alive in line and then goes away when I sit down two feet from you. There are just things, and it's okay to see it. It doesn't mean that we have to agree on every little part of all of that, but let's at least agree that there is incongruency on some of the things that we see today, that we're given eyeballs to see things, and we make, we recognize it. This is crazy. We're in crazy town right now. And so they are blinded. They aren't even using logic, he's trying to explain to them. You accept the law of Moses, but you don't even... You don't even keep it because right now, I know what's in the heart of man and you seek to kill me. You're like, ooh, she getting all political. No, I'm not. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So he doesn't argue. He cuts to the heart of the matter. This is what he says. He's basically saying, no, you're still mad about the Sabbath. Jesus answered them. I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? We've talked about this a little bit, but they understood the greater over the lesser. Okay, they understood that. They knew that in life and death, life preceded the Sabbath. But they also uh, circumcised, remember, um, what was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a sign um, reminding them of the covenant relationship that they have with God. Well, circumcision, okay, was also the sign of that covenant. So actually, they didn't contradict each other. They went together. But so is making a man's body whole. And so he's like, you'll do the one, but in this case, you're not doing the other. I'm telling you, you're blinded. The fact of your pride that you you will not humble your heart is making you blind, okay, blind, which that's a big deal because we're about to experience issues with light, all right? Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. Oh, by the way, after he said, um, and you want to kill me, do you remember what they said? You remember what the crowd said? When he goes, you got the law of Moses and you still want to kill me. And they're like, he got a demon. So this is the crowd. These are the pilgrims, remember, that have all come in. They're not in the know of what's happening in Jerusalem. And they're like, what? They trying to kill him? He's crazy. He's got a demon. He don't know. But now look who shows up. This is the locals. Okay, these are the locals. Some people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So once again, Jesus has proven correct in the fact that they want to kill him. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaims as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So these locals know the skinny. They're like, isn't this the one they wanted to kill? And now they're amazed. Because let me tell you what they do know, the religious leaders and what they're capable of. Because earlier in that same chapter, it said that the people did not speak out for fear of the religious leaders. I'm going to tell you what, they had control, or they think, of their people. Because if they didn't like you, what? They, yeah, they got rid of you, okay? And they're like, wait a minute, what is going on here? This is the guy that the religious leaders hate and want to kill. Yet here he is completely free and he's still teaching. What's wrong with this situation? Could it be that they know something about him that we don't? And then they start to debate. And they're like, oh no, wait a minute. 
that doesn't meet up with what we've been taught because we've been taught from our scriptures that when the Lord comes, he will just like spontaneously walk into the temple and we won't know where he comes from. That's the tradition of their teaching. Do you know that we still do that? Sometimes I wonder if we were in this same situation, if we would go, oh gosh, you're walking on the water, you heal the blind, that we, we've seen all this stuff, but that don't fit in with the Left Behind series. And I'm sorry, but that's my eschatology, and that's how it's been passed down to me, and this is what it's going to look like. It is going to be the mark of the beast, and it's going to be here, and this is what's going to happen, and so you have this tradition of what you've been taught, and now they're sitting there going, now wait a minute, what's going, all that he has shown them, the light has come in completely, and they're still back there debating, now wait a minute. And so it's getting out of control. They're really confused about him. And he says to them basically, okay, yes, you know me. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Yep, you're right, you know me. You know who I came from and you know where I came from. But what I'm trying to tell you is you don't know who sent me and where I've been. I have been sent here to you from the Father because you're right. You can see me and you can know me, but you cannot see and know him. So that is why I've come. He is constantly teaching what? The themes that he set up that John is saying, he was constantly teaching them that the word was God, but was with God, that he put on flesh and that he dwelt among us so that we could see the glory of God of the only son. And by seeing the light, we would believe in him. And by believing in him, we would be born from above and we would be children of God, the tale of two seeds. And that now we are in a new heavenly kingdom that does not end. And for every child of God, one day that flesh will never be left, it will be raised at the end of all time. I mean, that is the theme that is running through. And he is constantly telling them that. It says some believed. Even in all of this, some believed. Isn't that worth it? In all the conflict, in all the discussion, it says some believed. Well, the leadership's not putting up with that, so what did they decide to do? Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Wow. So they attempt to arrest him. But what? They can't because his time had not yet come. Who's in control? Jesus, God is in control. They think they're in control, but they actually have no control. And people who want control and have no control do what? They lose their ever-loving mind. And this is what's happening. And then comes my favorite parts, right? Now we're back at the feast. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating the wilderness wanderings. One of those things that they remember is when Moses struck the rock and the living water came forth. One of the ways they remembered, listen, there were two great uh, ceremonial things that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. One was in the morning, it was the water libation, and one was at night, which was the lighting of these grand candelabras that were in the court of the women in the treasury in the temple, so the highest place, and we'll talk about that next week. But this water libation, remember I taught it to you last year, but every day, the priests would take the golden vessel and they would walk through a town, we say, in a procession with singing and dancing and the blowing of the show. It's like a parade, okay? And everybody's out in the streets camping. It is a parade and they're walking down to the pool of Siloam 
okay? This living water, this spring that is fed, and they take the golden vessel and they fill it with water and they walk back and singing and jubilation. And on the last day, the great day, they walk around the altar seven times, remembering what? What else got walked around seven times? Jericho, which would have been the symbolic of the end of the wandering period. And then they would pour the water out with great celebration. It is in this location that Jesus stands up on this last great day. And he says, what? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I'm going to actually read it because I want to show you one thing. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I need to show you something about this just a little bit. I didn't point it out to you last time. Let me read to you the New Living Translation, all right? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. The question is, who is the his? Who, who, where's the water coming out of? All right. In the Greek, okay, so this is the literal uh, translation in the Greek. If someone is thirsty... Let them come to me and let them drink. The one who believes in me. So you could say it like this. If someone, the one who believes in me, is thirsty, let them come to me and let them drink. For scripture says rivers from his belly will flow living water. So the question that theologians debate is from whose belly is coming the living water. This is important. Okay, because first off, it needs to fit the scene and it needs to fit the theme of Johannine literature, John's writing. And so remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. So what are they remembering? The striking of the rock and the water pouring forth. Okay, write this reference down. We're almost done. I hate to end right here though. Uh, Exodus 17, six through seven. And I want you to underline a certain thing that maybe you haven't seen before. Exodus 17, six through seven. It says, behold, he's uh, Yahweh is talking to Moses, okay? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. Have you ever seen that before? Behold, I am standing, I'm going to come down and stand on this rock. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. Let me give you four other references about Jesus being referred to or God being referred to as the rock. Are you ready? Maybe next week I'll read a couple of them, but Deuteronomy 32.4. Psalm 78, 35, Psalm 95, 1, and Isaiah 44, 8. But I want to read you something out of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, so you get the connection. This is Paul speaking. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, fa that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? Christ. Okay? This idea of the rock following them comes from the idea that, do you remember twice he struck the rock? One time he shouldn't have, okay? But one was before Mount Sinai and one was on the way into the promised land, like bookends. So that's why he said the well followed them. 
So I believe it's much more fitting to think about when it says, from his belly will flow rivers of living water, that the subject of that is Jesus and that he is that rock. And that when we believe in him, we can come to drink. They don't come to me. I don't believe the river. Now we're going to talk about a little bit more of that. We become like him. But they come to Jesus to drink. He who is thirsty come and drink. Because from his belly, the rock, will flow rivers of living water. Now if you think that's cool, do not miss next week. Because we're going to expand that even more. Okay, we're going to look at this picture even more, uh, and it's, it's amazing. I think it's amazing. So um, give me a takeaway, somebody, because I just ended in the weirdest place. You got nothing? He is our rock. If you're thirsty, come to me and what? And drink, right? Come to me and drink. Here's the question, how often are you going to the rock to drink? You wonder why we're just parched and exhausted? And we don't do it out of obligation, my friends. We do it because we are thirsty as crud. It is our life, it is our joy, it is a great celebration that we get to come to the rock and drink. What else? Growth is in the process, it sure is. Don't rush the process. Do you trust me? I'm constantly, so I swim too now because it was too hot to run. And there is something about uh, swimming, just in case you've never done it. If you have any kind of anxiety, it's awesome for you. I know I'm over, but you breathe in and then you breathe out really hard. And then you breathe in and you breathe out and you kind of get this rhythm. But what I've been doing in my breath because I think about Jesus or the Spirit being our breath, is I say things to myself. I have these mantras. And so when I go under the water, I say things like, he loves me. He's for me. He's got this. He has a plan. We got to get those thoughts in our mind because the rest of our thoughts half the time are junk. Do you lie to yourself and tell yourself all kinds of junk? Because I do. But if I'm drinking from him, I'm reminded he's in charge. He has a plan. Don't rush the process. It is about the process. Don't rush to the outcome when some of the beauty's in the process. Because sometimes the outcome we go after ain't all that great. It takes more out of us than it gives to us. And so trust that process. Trust that time of growth. One more. The well never runs dry. I love that. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Right, love that song. What else over here? He is a good father. Absolutely, he's a good father. Is it okay to question? It is. I hope if you hear me say anything, say that. I mean, question it. Because you will find great things in the struggle. He let Jacob fight with him all night long. And in the fighting, in the wrestling, his name was changed. Not in the ignoring, in the wrestling. So wrestle and let your kids wrestle and tell them you're wrestling. There's mystery. We don't know everything, but we know enough. He is a good father. The well doesn't run dry. All of those things. Awesome. This is such great time together in the word. I, I love it. And uh, go home today and listen to the end of the beginning because he was born of a virgin one holy night in the little town of Bethlehem, right? Lord, thank you so much today for this time together that we can study your word. It is, oh, it's amazing, Lord. Um, every time I look at it, I see even more beauty in who you are. I see simplicity in it, just a beautiful simplicity of the gospel message but I see the depth of all that you fulfilled from the Old Testament and the prophets, which just gives me even more confidence that you are who you say you are. And all that you did, Lord, to show them that you were the great I am in the wilderness, but you had 
no longer dwelt in a tabernacle, a tent, but you had put on flesh and you were staring right at them. And you were here to say, listen, back then I took you by hand and I led you out like children and, and, and you broke the law. So I've done the better thing. I have come to do what nobody else could do. I fulfilled the scales. And now I want to help you through a relationship with me where I give you a new heart to turn those into music. They will be alive and living and you will have a relationship with me and people will see you, your neighbors all around will see and know that I am God. Thank you, Lord, for your scripture. Thank you that we have the freedom to study it. But Lord, above all, may it be evident in us in our joy, the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.